Welcome back to the Line to Gain podcast. This is an audible episode about the AFL or American Football League. My name is Jeremy Dixon, here as always with my guy Mike Parker, or MJ for those who uh, know him well. <laughs> welcome to, well, yeah, welcome Mike. I'm so excited about this, uh, this episode today, man. Yeah, so AFL was kind of a blind spot to me. Like, for me, if, like, if the f- professional football was a, a universe, I think the Super Bowl one was the Big Bang. I didn't really recall or have a lot of context about anything that happened before it. So this was a really, really fun deep dive into the AFL and these eight to ten teams that, that are still in the league today. It was it was really nice to see their uh, origins. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was so cool. And I know we both... Uh we kind of on the same day or around the same time found this like four and a half hour documentary about the AFL that just, I know, blew my mind and I'm pretty sure yours as well. Yeah. And I mean, it was so, it, it was so encompassing. I just blew. Yeah. I I was, I was completely uh, enthralled with it and just so excited to get to, to get to talk about the AFL and, and how it, yeah, how it really affects the NFL still today. Yeah, it's called full color football, I believe. So I was yeah. kind of tired a couple of weeks ago, and I sat down and like, hey, let me see if there's any documentaries on the AFL. I mean, there's got to be something, right? Yeah. So um, I go on to like YouTube and I find this thing, full uh, color football. It's like five episodes from Showtime back in I don't know, it's like 2008 or 2014, somewhere around there. You should you should be able to YouTube it. Um, but I started watching this thing, and then I text you, and I'm like, "Hey, I'm watching this, you know, a documentary on the AFL." And you text me back, like, "You mean this one?" I was just like, "We're just two insane people." Yeah, seriously, we're both nuts, <laughs> watching man. the same show. I know. I feel like we probably gave that about half of its views on YouTube over the last. Yeah. I think I watched it twice, man. It was uh, it was so interesting, and just to get ready for the for the show, so. But yeah, man, let's let's dig in. I guess we have some uh, some stat corrections to get to with our stat guy yeah, uh, from we, the last episode. Yeah, we worked with the, we worked with our stat guy to um, fix some things. So yeah, we did. And so the winner of the 1950s first to start with our our fantasy score from the 1950s was 3,286.94 points for myself and 3,229 points for you and that is all because my quarterback was also a kicker yeah so it was an (laughs) untapped piece of this fantasy draft that i didn't really uh, think about is that these players played multiple roles so you get a lot of the quarterbacks that also were kickers so you got punt points in so many different ways yeah so when we started to calculate that i mean good good job by you for sure (laughs) I appreciate it. So yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna kind of change up the scoring because we couldn't really figure out how to add point values to defenses, especially um, from back in the well, especially with the, the AFL. There was only like four or five players year over year that were kind of good. <laughs> it wasn't as deep <laughs> as we might expect in the NFL right now. Right. So um, having somebody pick first every time, it was just it was just gonna be a landslide whoever was picking first you know really was the one that was going to win right so we started the snake draft where we had switch at different positions so right. so this week you had the quarterback. first quarterback per, yeah. uh, picks i had the first running back you had receiver and so on exactly um, so yeah and then we removed defense right so yeah. no no defenses this week 
which is fine because uh, for for the last episode for the 1950s NFL, I just looked at who you know. I mean, I, I had no idea. I don't know any of the players on the Giants' defense. I was just like, well, they were second in passing defense and fourth in rushing, so yeah. they must have been pretty good. So well, it's and, very well, very good that you found those stats. You know, alone, right. I, I wasn't able to find a lot either. I kind of found this statistical website that said that I think the Browns had the least points scored against them year over year over the decade. So that's why I selected them. I think six yeah. times out of the 10 years of that decade. So it was just like a crapshoot, really. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, the other the other uh, stat guy info we have here is that uh, who broke Johnny Unitas' passing record? I thought it was Dan Marino. It Good guess. So, Fran Tarkenden held the record until Dan Marino broke it. Then, then it Brett was Favre. Yep. Then Peyton Manning. Then Drew Brees. Drew Brees and now Tom, Tom Brady. Brady. Right. Right. So, uh, yeah. I mean, I guess I was only one QB off on that. Yeah, the stat guy was pulling his hair out trying to figure out you can always find stats who is leading, who, passing leader of the NFL, but it's hard to find who took over and when. And when, right. So I had to do a, we had to do a deep dive, me and the stat guy, yeah. uh, to figure out like at what point a particular person took over that particular record. Sure, yeah. No, I, can, I completely understand. Yeah, that, you know, you'd think, oh, yeah, well, Brett Favre's the, the guy. You know, he broke it in this year, but, yeah, when – when did, or I guess you don't even know. You just know he was he held it from this time to this time or whatever. So yeah, it's got to be. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, I appreciate you and Stat Guy uh, helping us with that and getting us uh, the good info. So yeah, Mike. You know, the we're gonna do a quick overview of the AFL before we we get to some of our uh, kind of cast of characters and some of our topics here, or our categories, I should say. So there were several prior iterations of the American Football League. One in 1926, 1936, 1940, and each one lasted for just a year or two. Yeah, nothing to write home about. Right, until this 1960 version just, came around. Just some guys starting a league that didn't work out. Right, yeah. exactly. Uh, the, and so the latest iteration of the uh, American Football League lasted from 1960 until its merger with the NFL in 1970. Yep. And it's still, I mean, many, you know, there's what, how many teams, the, all the original? All 10 teams um, that entered into the NFL at the merger in 1970 still exist today. That's, that's amazing. That's and, we'll, really and we'll amazing. go over what those teams are. Right. Later. Right. Um, and so the concept of the new professional football league was the brainchild of Lamar Hunt, whose family still owns the Kansas City Chiefs. That is correct. To this day. Yeah. So he was 26 when he started to, to think about owning a football team. Right. And that was because he went to the 1958 NFL championship game and fell in love with football and just thought it could be so much more than what it actually was. Yeah. They call that at the time the greatest game, the greatest game ever. Uh, it was it was the Giants and the Colts playing in the championship game. Uh, Giants ended up uh, winning that out in 1958. Uh, but it just from that moment forward, I think he fell in love with the sport. Right, right. Well, yeah. Why don't Why don't you dig into the cast of characters here, and we'll, then we'll get on to our our categories and figure out who kind of the team of the uh, of the AFL was because we don't even have to put a decade on this. Just who's the team of the AFL? 
Yeah. So uh, we're really talking about three different groups. We're talking about the Bidwell family who own the Chicago Cardinals. Uh, they bought them in 1933 and um, we're having some troubles, uh, economic troubles back in the 50s. So uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, Burt Bell, NFL commissioner, um, very important piece of this. And then the Foolish Club. This is a name that um, they kind of called themselves the eight original proprietors of the AFL teams. They include Lamar Hunt uh, from Dallas, Texas, was a son of a billionaire oil man. Uh, Bud Adams from Houston, Texas. He was a Texas wildcatter. If you don't know what that is, he would basically prospect land, put a oil derrick up and kind of hope that he hit oil out there in Texas. Uh, apparently he did because he had enough to buy a football team. <laughs> we have Bud Bob Hausman out of Denver, Colorado, a formal, former baseball man, uh, was trying to collectively bring professional sports to Denver. And when he saw the opportunity um, for a potential NFL expansion team, he jumped into this uh, as well. Uh, Baron Hilton. Yes, that Hilton. He was uh, out in L.A., uh, heir to the Hilton hotel chain and uh, entrepreneur in his own right. Harry Wismer uh, from New York, New York, um, sports broadcaster, former minority owner of the uh, both the Lions and um, the Washington football team, uh, obviously at different times. Ralph Wilson, um, he was in Buffalo, New York. He was born in Detroit, war hero, industrialist, and uh, at the time a minority owner of the Detroit Lions. All, all things point to Detroit. It's interesting. Yeah. And then f the final piece of the expansion puzzle or the, the league puzzle was Billy Sullivan uh, out of Boston, Massachusetts, a local sp sports writer and PR director. He was the PR director for several uh, big institutions you may know, Boston College, Notre Dame, the Boston Braves. The final piece of this, which I thought was very interesting, is a guy named Max Winner out of Minneapolis. Um, he was a restaurateur and a part owner of the Minneapolis Lakers. So here's what I found out, weirdly enough. So after uh, George Mikan left, retired from the Minneapolis Lakers, they started to have a lot of financial trouble. And the, the, minor, the majority owner at the time had asked you know, local businesses and local people to invest. <clears throat> there were like 200 different minority owners at the time. And uh, Max Winter was one of them. Uh, so this is all obviously prior to them moving to Los Angeles. Um, but he also was a restaurateur and he, that he, he co-owned a restaurant uh, called 620 Club with his brother. His brother was a local boxing promoter. So I thought boxing like in, in the in the 40s and 50s, I went, hmm, this might be corrupt. There might be yeah. some uh, some money in there that isn't legitimate. Right. So I started to dig a little bit deeper and it turned out his 620 club um, was a hangout for a lot of the organized crime in the area. And that's just not like Italian mafia or anything. That's just like a lot of the organized crime in that area people would hang out here, including some former box uh, boxers that, you know, turn into the heavies for these organized crime uh, organizations. Yeah. yeah. So I thought it was very interesting, like this prohibition boom towns from like Buffalo and Cleveland and Detroit, Milwaukee, Minnesota up, you know, as you kind of go from uh, east to west along the um, 
shores of the Great Lakes and yeah. how these towns kind of boomed out there. And I just, you know, did <laughs> was the Lakers in part funded by money from organized crime? Was the eventual Minnesota Vikings funded the same way? Who knows? But Boot, it, bootleggers, but, yeah, throwing exactly. their money, trying to legitimize their money. I, I haven't proved it. Yeah. I'm not saying that. Allegedly, it, it allegedly. is. It is just an interesting uh, sidebar. All right. Yeah, we don't. We don't need Max Winter's uh, family coming after us. So allegedly, Max Winter possibly was involved in organized crime, and that's how he got his money for the Vikings. Yeah, Augie Ratner. We're just saying. <laughs> All right, so that is the that is the full eight of the Foolish Club, um, and those are the cast of characters that we're going to have um, as we enter into the 1960s for the AFL. Absolutely, absolutely. And then uh, next up, I guess we're going to go through kind of a more brief, like brief history uh, or not so brief history of the uh, AFL. But... <laughs> right. So why was the AFL formed? What was the genesis behind it? Uh, it all started uh, in the 50s. The NFL was starting to really compete with Major League Baseball as, as a top-notch uh, professional sports league. Um, the teams were making quite a bit of money, uh, with one exception, and that was the Chicago Cardinals. They were uh, one of the original teams um, in the NFL. Um, they were in Chicago with the Bears, obviously, and they were having a tough time competing with, with those particular teams. So um, I think it was around 1947, um, it was, uh, Charles Bidwell, who had owned the team from 33, had passed away, and the team got passed to Violet, his, his wife. Um, at the time, she was kind of she remarried a St. Louis businessman and um, wanted to move the team to St. Louis. But the NFL said, you know, you can move, but you have to pay us a lot of money. And they didn't like the terms. So um, I guess the word went out to all these rich people. They were on the same Slack, I guess, the NFL expansion Slack. And they all started calling uh, the Bidwells and the NFL looking for either a majority ownership piece of the Cardinals or an expansion team. So that's kind of what started this. So one of the people that came out of the woodwork um, was Lamar Hunt. And who we had already mentioned is the for, uh, is the son of a, an oil man from Texas. And, you know, he's 26 years old, falls in love with professional football at the going to the 1958 NFL championship game. And what decides he wants to get in um when the bidwells announce or i i don't and like you said i don't know if they're they're publicly announcing that they're trying to sell or if it's just kind of a a you know closed doors type thing where where if you're in the right circles you get that notification um but he actually goes to meet with the bidwell family the bidwells and burt bell uh the commissioner and they try to figure out how to do it, but you know the Bidwells don't want to give up majority ownership, so they're they're like, no, I don't, I don't we want the team. Um, we'll try to figure it out. And then Lamar's like, well, can I have an expansion team? We can go to Dallas, where he's from. And you know the NFL is like, no, we already tried Dallas in like 1952. It didn't work out. It failed. So I, I don't think that's where we want to go. 
so he kind of he, he kind of gets back on a plane and heads heads home little tail between the legs and starts to conceptualize this idea of where uh, of where he wants to go with this and on a like an airplane napkin on the flight down starts jotting down all of the organizational structures and how he wants the gameplay to be and all this different stuff um, after a few months he reaches out to the different people that were um, inquiring about per either purchasing the the Cardinals team or an expansion team and were denied and uh, they got them together so those original six were Hunt, Bud Adams, Bob Hausman, Max Winner, per uh, Baron Hilton and Harry Wismer. Those were the first six that were like, yeah, we're in. But they felt like they needed to round that out a bit and uh, brought in Ralph Wilson and uh, Billy Sullivan after the fact. But right. so that's once once they got together, it was, yeah, let's do this. Yeah. And then so I know the notion of the AFL wasn't really I, I guess the NFL kind of laughed it off at first, you know, thinking like another league starting How are they going to compete like, with yeah, us? They're not, yeah, there's no way. Um, and then the Burt Bell, the uh, commissioner of the NFL at the time, was brought before Congress because of uh, monopoly laws and saying, you know, that you guys are, are a monopoly. Why shouldn't we break you up? And he's like, well, no, there's this other league called the AFL. They're, they're doing great things, you know. And he actually talked them up in front of Congress to, you know, kind of get himself out of trouble, which right. really, I mean, probably gave them the, the little bit of an edge they needed to actually gain some, some ground and some momentum, right? Yeah, it gave them some validity in the market. Uh, you have the NFL commissioner telling, you know, the whole world essentially that this is a viable league. Um, they put themselves in places that weren't always directly competing with uh, NFL teams. Um, yeah, that it was very. I don't envy Burt Bell's position. Like, right. what are you going to do? You you have Congress telling you we're going to break you up as a monopoly, um, and you have to deal with that problem first, and then you kind of promote promote the AFL <laughs> and then you kind of create a something that's more difficult for you to deal with down the line. Right. But, but he probably thought it would, that would, was the easy, you know, the 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 lesser of two evils at the time cuz like, well, we're we're still so powerful if we exactly. can keep our power, we're going to be able to smash these guys and and kind of put this fire out. The irony is it it, it worked out for everybody. Right. Including the AFL owners. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, yeah, they um, after so Burt Bell passed away not long after his time uh, in front of Congress and and giving the AFL this validity. And then new NFL commissioner Pete Rozelle decided to offer Lamar Hunt and Bud Adams NFL expansion franchises to you know keep them from thinking that would stop the AFL in its tracks. Right. You take two away to like the the originator of this thing and one of his his top uh top guys give yep. them their own teams and then hey problem solved you know we get two it, more teams and we don't have to deal with this other startup league exactly i mean if you really want he was trying to cut the legs off of this other team by offering the two most important and biggest advocates for the afl uh, an expansion team um this was a response to the fact that you know once they got their charter going 
once they started drafting people, once they started securing stadiums that were competing directly with with NFL teams, they it started to become real. And we're we're going to try to nip this in the bud right away. That was Pete Rozelle's um, strategy. And in fact, it didn't work this time. Uh, Lamar and Bud Adams were very much willing to kind of play this out. Right. Yeah. And so uh, the NFL began to undermine the AFL, allowing for the two uh, NFL expansion franchises in Minnesota and Dallas for the 1961 season. So that caused Max Winter to withdraw from the AFL because he got his Vikings. He had a franchise uh, from the NFL for the 61 season. And I mean, that like, that's like cutting the legs out from under you know, the AFL completely because, you know, you're already sitting there with only eight owners. Right. You lose. So you direct, what you do is you directly compete with the guy who's the thorn in your side. We're going to go right after Lamar Hunt and right. Dallas Texans. We're going to give them, a team we're going to give them the Cowboys yeah, in 1960. Cowboys, right. We're going to see how it plays out. Right. And then they go ahead and pluck one of their people that signed the charter. And mm-hmm. we're going to give them uh, a team for the 1961 season. We're going to say, Hey, we're going to pull you out right now. We're going to give you the Vikings. It's going to start in 1961, but you have to leave these guys. So Max Winter's gone. Right. So they have these gaps. It, I mean, it, from a strategy to undermine a team. I mean, the NFL was not pulling any. Yeah, punches. they didn't. They did not play at all, at all. And so, yeah, the NFL players at this time were excited that there was another league put in there because I, I heard a quote from Jim Brown and he was just like, what am I going to do? Go play in the CFL? Like it's too cold up there for me. You know, like I can't deal with that. So, so it, eloquently put by, yeah. by Jim Brown. <laughs> so his perspective is, I mean, I don't care right now. I have two choices. I have the NFL or the CFL. At least here I have more choices. Right. And you can, these players, I mean, not, not NBA player empowerment, but let's think about if I have an option to go play in uh, Houston if Cleveland doesn't want to pay me, I can still go out and do what I want to do. Exactly. And it's it's on television. It's the same sport. I mean, right. I mean, from a player's perspective, it's yeah, got to be no, empowering. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So for the AFL to keep gaining kind of their, their traction, their validity, uh, they decided to name Joe Foss the first commissioner of the AFL. And so he was a naval fighter, fighter pilot, uh, you know, war hero, South Dakota governor at one point, and uh, he was well loved by America, basically, and uh, the media loved him. He actually flew to every AFL training camp in his own plane. Like, he flew himself because he was, you know, former uh, former Navy fight, fighter pilot. So he flew himself down there to all these different kind of ragtag cities in the league and yeah so some of our older audience might recognize the name joe foss i i didn't have any idea me either um it sounded like this was kind of like the real american hero type of guy um and i I thought it was just crazy he just gets in a plane flies out to to los angeles to visit the chargers jumps in you know jumps back in and heads over to houston and just i mean to me that was just an amazing anecdote Right. Yeah, me too. I already think he's kind of one of the cooler people in this kind of, you know, story. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that the AFL had to contend with um, early on, especially, is that um, there's only a certain pool of 
people you can pull from. So that's usually college. It's kind of like what you see now with the NFL draft. They pull from college, some like European NFL leagues and international exchange programs, a, a bulk, 99.9% of the people that they draft come from college. So they were competing directly with the NFL. So the NFL would have a draft and then the AFL would have a draft. And they and the AFL ended up drafting somewhere in the neighborhood of 75% of who was drafted by the NFL. Now, what this meant was a lot of these people signed with the NFL because it was the more established league. Right. They uh, paid a little bit better at the time, things like that. And then you weren't getting this level of um, talent kind of matriculating to the AFL. Right. With, with one real exception, they did a really good job pulling um, the 1960 Heisman Trophy winner, Billy, uh, they called him Billy the Atomic Cannon. Um, they, he was from LSU, and he was uh, drafted by the Houston Oilers' first pick, and they ended up getting him. And He was, he was actually drafted in the NFL as well as the first right, pick. Right, first pick too, as well. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, it's, it's crazy. The first player to get drafted in the AFL was picked first by both the NFL and the AFL. That's yeah, that's pretty funny, man. What imagine the uh, yeah, just the option of being able to be like, hmm, I'm gonna go. How much are you gonna give me? <laughs> well, I mean, that's some. We'll hear some stories later on about right. some players that were able to, to kind of facilitate that. So, um, the one thing we had to clean up was you know the Vikings and Max Winter. Max Winter was leaving to go get the Vikings team, so right. there was kind of a hole there. So they were trying to figure out where the next where, where they were going to go next if not minnesota then where um this is where kind of baron hilton raises his hand and says you know i'd like some competition in california to keep my costs down i don't want to like jump on a plane to to go to you know texas and uh, buffalo and, right. and like all these east coast towns so afl agreed all right they find a place um, in Oakland, an ownership group in Oakland, and there you go. We have the Raiders. So the Raiders didn't – they basically just inherited what the Minnesota franchise, what they drafted right, and all of their that. leadership. And they brought – aside from the owners, but they brought all of those – they just basically inherited everything else. So with that piece, we're kind of off. You know, We're off and going. Um, and then the AFL became a full-fledged competitor. Um, began to really scare the NFL owners. Yeah, no, no doubt, no doubt. You know, and so yeah, conclusion of our not so brief history of the AFL is just that over the years the AFL became a full fledged comp- competitor and and really began to scare some of the NFL owners. Uh, the bidding wars for college players, especially, it was just destroying their bottom line because they were having to overpay for all these guys that they used to not have to bid against. You know, you're just you draft a guy, you pay it, you know, you, you bid against it's not yourself, easy anymore, right? right? Yeah, it's yeah. not just like, hey, here's your contract, get to get to training camp. Uh, so there, the costs were up. And finally, Pete Rosell asked Tex Schramm, who was the GM of the Cowboys, uh, and Lamar Hunt to, to sit down and talk about an option of merging the two leagues. And the rest is history. The rest is history, for sure. So, you know, just to remind everybody before we get into our categories – of the dynasty by decade rules. So you must make the playoffs in a given year to earn points. 
To be the, quote, dynasty of the AFL, you must win at least one championship or Super Bowl in that time. Uh, Teams will earn points based on how far they make it in the playoffs. So one point for making the playoffs, two for a conference loss, three for a conference title win, four for a Super Bowl loss, five for a Super Bowl win. And the team that wins a Super Bowl in any given year, the most points they can get is nine. Right. And then this, you know, will help us determine the champion and runner-up for the decade as well, uh, as any other, as well as any other notable teams in that decade, which there are a lot in this decade. So yeah, we wanted to call out there are several teams that were impactful um, to the AFL, uh, to NFL history in general, uh, to Super Bowl history. So I thought it was important to call out uh, at least uh, a few of these because of their importance historically. Right. So let's go to the categories. Yep, let's get to it. So the first category is the teams. Uh, We're starting 1960 with eight teams. Um, The AFL was broken into two divisions, the AFL Eastern Division and Western Division. In the Eastern, we have the Oilers, Houston Oilers, the New York Titans, the Buffalo Bills, and the Boston Patriots. And in the Western, we have the LA Chargers, Dallas Texans, Oakland Raiders, and the Denver Broncos, a.k.a the AFC West. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, yeah. So prior to the 1961 season, the chargers relocate from LA to San Diego. Tired of competing with the Rams. Right. Yep. This is where they've been. And it's funny that they're both back there yeah. now, you know, after over the last couple of years. Uh, and then prior to the 63 season, the New York Titans changed their name to the jets and the Dallas Texans moved from, Dallas, Kansas City, and became the Chiefs. Yeah, the Titans rebranded to the Jets because they were miserable, you know, from a <laughs> they were just a bad team. Right. They were in a bad place, the Polo Grounds, and they needed to needed a change. And the Texans moved in part because it was what was best for the league. Instead yeah, of Lamar Dur- Hunt really I mean sacrifice. Yeah, giving up Dallas for Kansas City is probably not an easy, you know, market switch there. Yep. Yeah, and then the Miami Dolphins were added for the 66 season. Uh, and the Bengals were the last team to enter the AFL in 1968. And yeah, so at the end of the decade, what we're left with is essentially the NFC or the AFC West and the AFC East, and then Houston and Cincinnati sprinkled in to yep. either one. That so, is correct. Yeah. So the AFL Eastern Division at the end of the decade is the Houston Oilers, the New York Jets, Buffalo Bills. Boston Patriots and Miami Dolphins and the AFL Western Division is the San Diego Chargers, Kansas City Chiefs, Oakland Raiders, Denver Broncos and Cincinnati Bengals. Yep, yep. All right, next category, changing the game. So, I thought this was interesting that a kicker is the person that made the two leagues go nuclear in their uh, <laughs> in their war. I, this was a this was a great story. <laughs> so, this is this guy, this kicker, uh, Pete Gogleck. Uh, born in Hungary, emigrated to the U.S. Uh, kind of after the Hungarian Revolution in 1956. He becomes the first special team specialist. So the position dedicated to do one thing only on special teams. He was a kicker. He was the first soccer-style kicker in AFL-NFL history. Um, he came into the AFL as a member of the Buffalo Bills. So his contract is coming up. And the AFL and the NFL have what they call a gentleman's agreement not to poach each other's players. But here comes Wellington Mara, 
of the New York Giants, owner of the New York Giants. Now right. he's getting a little twitchy because the now New York Jets with Joe Namath are starting to make some waves and take a little bit of his uh, right in New York at the time chopping down all, at his ivory tower. Yeah, every, all anybody was talking about at the time in, in the late '60s there was uh, in New York was Joe Namath. Yeah, exactly. So and in one of the most colossal bonehead moves, plants his flag into this Pete Gogolak, you know. Signs him over to the Giants, and then he sets loose Al Davis. <laughs> Al Davis took a flamethrower to the league after this. So Al Davis is like, oh, you're going to poach our kicker? And he actively goes against and starts poaching the Rams players. And the reason he picked the Rams is because Pete Rozelle was the former PR director of the Rams. Right. So this was a shot at Pete Rozelle specifically. And then he ends up facilitating some deals. He's the commissioner now, by the way, Al Davis, uh, of the AFL. And he, he considers himself a wartime commissioner. Wartime commissioner. Yeah. <laughs> he had this quote, like, um, the generals fight the war and then the politicians make peace. Yeah. Um, so that, that was his mindset. Right. So he goes after Mike Didka and he steals Mike Didka from the Bears for $250,000. He has signs with the Oilers. He goes after John Brody, who is the leading passer of the NFL at the time. Who gets signed him. the first million-dollar contract, Bonkers right? for those 49ers. days. 49ers. And he goes to the or Oilers. Or with uh, the Oilers, I mean, from the 49ers. And now it's game on. This is the full competition. This is Al Davis going directly at the NFL. This is... Um, Hank Schramm and, and Tex, or Tex Schramm and uh, Lamar Hunt, go, you know, going back and forth and um, trying to negotiate this deal. This is all this turmoil is happening at this uh, at this time. Right. So what are some cool things that were added that, that they brought to the table, the AFL? So uh, first of all, it, they brought the 14 game schedule. Um, yeah. The uh, NFL adopted that a couple of years later when they added the uh, Cowboys and the Vikings. But so AFL f- uh, 14 game schedule, uh, the two point conversion was something that they brought to the table to kind of spice things up a little bit. Um, yeah, I thought, you know, they were the first, I guess, league to put player names on the back of the jerseys, which makes it a little easier to, I guess, see when you're watching the game on television, which is another there. Their brand on television, they really like revolutionized revolutionized the the TV broadcast of these games, and it was I mean that's one of the big reasons they they did so you know they were able to stick around compared yeah. to some of these other leagues. Exactly. So the NFL is all about the shield, right? Yeah. They do promote players, but as a group, really, as a team, all under the shield. Um, the NFL or the AFL was trying to do something a little different. Uh, they were trying to make a superior TV product. We're going into the 60s. Television is becoming a thing. We're seeing as we're watching the highlights in this documentary, the, the highlights from the 1960s to the 19, from 1960 to 1963 were vastly different. Right. Like color, color television is way better, uh, less pixelated. It just It's a better product. And as a result, they started implementing these different things. Like you said, the names on the back of the jerseys, sign line reporters. And we're not talking yeah. about like what we see as sideline reporters now. They would go stick the microphone in front of a player or a coach while the game was going on. <laughs> so <laughs> they were really trying to integrate the whole experience. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things that I saw was that they were the first 
uh, the, the NFL at the time wasn't doing it, but they decided to start putting the game clock on the stadium scoreboard so you could know how much time was left in a given quarter or half and not be, you know, wave just depending on the ref like blowing the whistle and waving his hands like game over. Sorry. Could you imagine as an uh, an NFL fan right now not having the down and distance, the play clock and the game clock as as a fan I watch and I go, "Okay, what's the situational?" Right play call here me too yeah me too totally like i need to know what are that what kind of what kind of play am i going to expect on third and seven versus third and one right it's to me it's integral and with how much time like are they able to run the ball right now because there's they only have a minute to go in the half or whatever are they going to be able to run and you know yeah get get on screaming yeah gotta spike (laughs) right gotta spike spike So they uh, also captured like microphones on the sidelines, uh, really captured the sounds of football, the hitting, the, the ball whizzing by. There was like all of these sound effects that uh, the AFL uh, in a, uh, kind of innovated. So I, I like watching the, you know, the, the highlights of this was it was crazy. Absolutely. So different than from like when you're watching a screen, there's like no noise. You hear an announcer, maybe <clears> some <throat> crowd noise versus like a hit and you know people screaming out on the field and stuff like that you see i hear that a lot more when i watch an nfl game now like when the crowd gets quiet you can hear the audibles from the quarterback much clearer yeah it's it's omaha yeah omaha (laughs) Omaha, the most (laughs) most popular and the the other thing uh that they did was picked very vibrant colors they wanted not only did they just wanted something to pop on television you know right. not the dark blues and the dark greens and the crimson they might, they might have made a mistake with uh with the denver broncos uniforms they i guess they were notoriously just hideous looking and had weird striped socks that everybody made fun of and they finally uh, had a fan event where they burned yeah thousands of pairs of these an absolute uh, anomaly socks yeah. so they <laughs> but did, all the other ones were pretty yeah they all were pretty cool uh uniforms you can kind of catch them on a throwback night uh, when you're watching the the current denver broncos have um, they have they run without with those i think I brandon think marshall was still playing for the broncos the last time they did it That's but now right. now it's almost like a joke right yeah here are our yellow striped socks yeah <laughs> ugliest uniforms of all time no doubt so another thing that they brought to the table was the idea of the Super Bowl. This was an invention, again, of Lamar Hunt. Um, he, so they were trying to figure out a name for this particular game. That as, as him and Tex were working this process out, they wanted to bring the two leagues together before they merged and play like a world championship game. And they needed like branding for it. So uh, I guess his wife, Lamar Hunt's wife, had brought his uh bought his grandchildren some of these super balls those bouncy balls that you just like pounce off the floor and they just ricochet off of everything um and um so he he combined that super part with the idea of a bowl the bowl being the type of stadium that they played in right Um, so they're kind of bowl shaped right yeah Yeah, it was made popular by the bowl shape of the the rose bowl in pasadena so it kind of like you know you got the the tostitos bowl the rose you know the rose bowl the super bowl it's all that's the cotton bowl um it all gets 
its roots from really the Rose Bowl. Yeah. Well, the Yale Bowl actually is was the first stadium was the Yale football stadium was the okay. first stadium that had that design, but oh. it was popularized by the um, by the Rose Bowl. <laughs> okay. So another thing that they brought to the table, which was I think is one of the most single most important financial pieces of the uh, AFL's contribution to the NFL, which is revenue share. Um, they basically took their national TV contracts and split that up. And that is what we do now, or not we, the NFL does now. They, they right. take all of that money that goes into a big pot and they split it among the 32 teams. Now, your ticket sales in your stadium and certain concessions, concessions certain um, uh, clothing and jerseys and stuff outside of the NFL store ecosystem can be individually taken, but yeah. like NFL store TV contracts, everything goes into a big pot and divided, divided by evenly. 32. And yeah, and I thought this was interesting because he actually got this idea from Branch Rickey, who at the time was the uh, Major League Baseball commissioner because Lamar Hunt was debating kind of at the time of whether to go into base, like try to buy a baseball team or, or try to buy an NFL expansion team, which then obviously turned into starting the AFL. Right. And, um, yeah. And, and he actually got, I guess, Branch Rickey got the idea from, uh, Bill Vec, who was a Cleveland Indians owner at the time. And, um, he was mad that the Yankees were so good all the time, every year and, and had kind of endless pockets and they were, you know, getting all the money, more people were seeing their the Yankees games than anybody else. So the Yankees are, have way more money than anybody else, can pay more players than anybody else, and on and on. And you know, he was called a socialist and probably every other name under the under the sun at the time in the in the nineteen fifties or whatever. You know, what, I'm not positive what year it was that that uh, that Lamar Hunt actually got this kind of idea from Branch Rickey, but I'm guessing I would it was the sixties. Sometime, okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's it's interesting that um, we have to go to baseball to, to to pull this idea, but it's it's not unheard. Like baseball didn't have salary cap, and the Yankees were able to take all of their money and just buy the best players. Right. There was no there was no free agency then yet. I don't think until or I guess. But even but even now they not... they they still had all the money. Yeah, you know all all of their money for the Yes Network, all of their money for I mean because baseball is really a regional kind of sport in a lot of ways right all that money goes to the yankees they have more like bullets in their gun and they just are better because of that so lamar really wanted to assure that that his um his teams had uh competition you know that that there was some uh equality to uh the process so that they all could compete um, and we'll see that when we visit kind of the winners and notable mentions of the decade, um, that how well these these teams were able to do, how, how well different teams were able to do over the um, course of the decade. Absolutely, yeah. And then I guess another huge thing was how segregated the NFL was at the time. Yeah. And I know we, we've talked about this, how – you know, during this documentary that we watched, they're talking to some of the players, and they're just like, "Yeah, the NFL would." There's never had, one or three black players. No, there's there's the, two the or four because no because they didn't want a black player having to bunk with a 
with a white player, probably a white player having to, you know, with with the times. I'm sure there was more of that a white player didn't want to bunk with a black player. Um, so yeah, they the uh, AFL was like, you know, we need players. So I think it was, you know, I don't know if it was them being valiant and wanting to to, you know, break down barriers more than like we need players. So they started. My guess is it's probably the latter, right? You're trying to compete directly with the NFL and you're not doing so good. So you have to get players from somewhere. So one of the things that they had decided to do uh, to their benefit. So this is where I go. I mean, this is this has helped a lot of people and we'll explain why in a minute. Um, But they started uh, over. uh, They started going after under recruited HSBCs. So they found a lot of talent in the traditional black colleges and brought them in and integrated that with every player that they had. This is actually really smooth, and they did a pretty good job of, at least when we were listening to the um, documentary, it seemed like the players felt included in that process. So that, that's good. And this led to an explosion of talent on the field. Uh, talent we wouldn't have normally seen and then eventually to coaching positions as as those players kind of mature and move into those different parts of their uh, football lives right right all right so the next category that we have here is the fantasy draft so this is where we draft a a couple quarterbacks a couple running backs receivers flex guy and we kind of play them out over a course of uh, three individual years within that decade. We pick their th- best three years, um, and then we kind of see who won. So S- Jeremy has the first pick of the quarterbacks. So Jeremy, who did you? Who was your first pick of the AFL 1960 AFL uh, fantasy draft? Well, Mike, I'm, I thought you'd never ask. Uh, my first <laughs> pick was. George Blanda. I, I went back to my old tricks. I found a, a quarterback who was a top-level guy that who probably would have been close to the first quarterback drafted, even if he didn't have all the points for kicking as well. But he was the kicker and the quarterback for the Houston Oilers. In I took him from 61 to 63, and he threw for – uh, just over 9,100 yards in those three seasons. And that's coming over um, from the Steelers, I believe, from the NFL. And they basically were like, we just want you to be our kicker. We don't want you to be our quarterback anymore. And he was like, I can still play. I can still sling him. I can still sling him. Now, he threw it a lot. He threw it to the other team a lot. But so did everybody else in the AFL. I think back then, it, which was it was this shocking. This is a theme to me. for the AFL. They weren't like statistically they were less efficient uh, than the NFL quarterbacks. Uh, they threw almost as many interceptions as they did touchdowns. Often, um, why they got this perception of a more kind of vertical down the field league, um, not exactly sure because the statistics sh- certainly don't bear that out. But either way, it got them noticed. And he actually retired in 1958 from the Steelers because they only wanted him to be the kicker and then came back, um, I believe, in 1960 or 60, yeah, 1960 with the Oilers. He was all an, uh, all AFL quarterback and AFL player of the year in 61. And like I said, he was also the place kicker, so he's getting those good, uh, those good extra points and field goals for me. So should I have the first pick um, this particular – decade slash league I definitely would have picked him he was on the list 
Mm-hmm. And it wasn't till I kind of started to break down all of his, enter all his scoring into my, my spreadsheet that I really started to go, I'm really screwed here. There's no way I can make up for these points. So on average, a quarterback, a good quarterback, will score somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 200, 220 points over the course of a year um, based on the calculations that I have. He was scoring somewhere around 3, 330 because of the special teams, the the field goals, and the and the point after touchdown, so I was really starting behind the eight ball. So <laughs> that being said, and setting the stage uh, for what is probably going to be a loss here, um, I my first pick as quarterback was Daryl Lamonica. He was the quarterback for the uh, Oakland Raiders, um, second half of of the decade. He. See, this is the thing that kills me. My guys threw more yards than your picks. I don't understand. Right. <laughs> but so D- Daryl LaMonica throws for almost 10,000 yards um, and 89 uh, passing TDs throughout this 1976, 78, uh, 1967, 7, 68, and 69 years. Um, yeah, so I don't know how I lost this, but yeah. that's pretty, I mean, it's pretty crazy. Three years. Yeah. You, you're throwing for almost 10,000. I mean, that's in 14 games, mind you. Right, right. Absolutely. Well, and then, yeah, so my next pick, Mike, was uh, Joe Namath, Broadway Joe. You might have heard of him. 4,000K, um, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yards. He was, uh, Yards. Right. So I chose him between 1966 and 68. He was first overall pick in the 65 AFL draft, two-time AFL, AFL MVP, and led the league in passing twice. Um, in those three years, he threw for 10,500 yards, give or take a few, um, and 60 or 61 touchdowns. I'm not 100% sure, but 60 touchdowns, I believe. So, I mean, those are pretty phenomenal stats, and he, he really lived up to the hype in those those early years there. And, yeah, uh, 60 touchdowns. Yeah. And 72 interceptions. I know, sure. right? He only – that's the crazy thing, man. I looked – I think he only had one year that he threw more touchdowns and interceptions, and I think it was like a, it was like fifteen touchdowns to twelve interceptions or something crazy like that. Well, when we were kind of looking at the at the documentary, the the, the basic story about him was he was kind of a, a gunslinger. He had a cannon arm, um, but really tried to push the ball downfield quite a bit, and I think he was probably throwing. He, he would throw and he'd get intercepted and then he'd go back and throw that same same route. So he was really trying to push the ball downfield. It wasn't until they elected him captain that he apparently kind of decided to do a little bit more risk assessment uh, before he was started just slinging passes. Um, and it to, to the team and his benefit, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. So great choice um, for your second quarterback. I have the Senator Jet Kemp. Um, 7,600 yards, 37 touchdowns um, in the uh, 63, 64, and 66 years. Um, He was MVP of the league in 64 and 65 when they won their back-to-back AFL championships. They called him the senator, but he actually was in the House of Representatives for the state of New York, and he was in the uh, Department of Urban Development under H.W. Bush. Right, I political do career. That. Yeah. yeah, I do remember that. And lovely hair. <laughs> All right, so I got an opportunity to pick running backs first, based on our new 
snake draft. And I picked up a guy called Cookie Gilchrist. 1962, three, and four. Kind of a dual threat in a lot of ways, but man, just a punishing runner. We're at about 3,000 yards of rushing, 875 yards receiving, and a total of uh, 35 touchdowns over that period of time. And he was kicking some, um, doing some kicking work too. So he had an extra 38 points of special teams just to kind of put a cherry on top. Nice. Uh, watch some some highlights of this guy. Man, Um I think he's more of a, a, a Earl Campbell than anything else. Very much a bruising runner. He would hit you head straight on, run right over you. Uh, yeah, it was crazy to watch. I, I had never heard of him before, so this was really fun to to learn about. Yeah, and my first running back pick was Abner Haynes for the Dallas Texans between 1960 and 1962. Uh, he was the rookie of the year and the MVP in 1960, uh, which is pretty impressive. Uh, he was also three-time first-team All-AFL. He in those three years he ran for 2,700 2,700 yards and re- had 1,500 yards receiving. So he was kind of a yeah, like definitely a dual threat. Yeah, dual threat here. guy. Um, you know, doing his thing. Had 43 touchdowns in that that span rushing and receiving receiving, which is that's over three years that's pretty damn good so that was my guy for my first running back selection all right my second selection at running back was clem daniels um a little bit of a drop off from cookie uh, but not too much he really did his damage in in the receiving so um true um dual threat here so 2800 yards rushing 10 touchdowns uh and 1900 yards receiving with another 18 and that was for the years 63 4 and 5 so my uh second running back selection was paul Lowe, who was a running back uh for la slash san diego chargers he was there in, in 60 uh he was uh and i chose the years i chose was six, were 60 63 and 65 he actually won MVP in 1965 and uh, was also first team all AFL. He had in those three years 3,000 uh, rushing yards, 700 receiving yards, and 27 touchdowns. So, you know, I mean, I just felt like he was kind of a, I mean, he was the next, next best guy. There wasn't a lot of, really not a lot of uh, Hall of Fame type uh, running backs in the AFL. Yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, I think you get into that 5-6 range. That's really what you're talking about. There were eight teams. I'm not sure they were fielding, you know, 53 at the time. I'm not sure what their roster, you know, what their rosters looked like at the time, 100%. But um, there's probably just like a not not a lot of uh, players that ended up making it. In fact, Paul Lowell was working in the mailroom for uh, Baron Hilton's credit card company at the time he was discovered. He was a huge, huge um, college player, just kind of sitting down there um, opening envelopes. And somebody had told Baron that this guy was down there and he used to play ball. He might be, might play for your team. Right. Okay, so my first wide receiver selection was Lance Allworth, who ended up having 4,300 receiving yards in um, – 65 66 and 68 those are the three uh, seasons i chose for him and also he had 
37 touchdowns receiving in those three years. Um, you know, he was actually voted at one point, or everybody called him the uh, best receiver, regardless of, of league, in 1960s professional football. So they considered him to be the best. Didn't matter if it was NFL, AFL, he was the guy. Yeah, a lot of the highlights for receivers back then were just guys going deep and catching it like right before they slam into the H that's at the front end of the you know the goal line. Yeah. <laughs> um, he was the one one of the first that I noticed that he was running crisp routes, come out coming out of breaks, using leverage. Um, I mean, he just looked so fluid compared to the herky jerky running style of a lot of the players back then. Right, and he uh, he was actually uh, AFL Player of the Year in 1963. And he was first team all AFL six different times. All right, this is where it gets dark. Oh, actually, I'm sorry. Can I add one more story in there? Yeah. One of his teammates said they were on a plane uh, flying back from – or flying to or flying back from a game, and the plane started having major turbulence, shaking, like oxygen masks falling from the ceiling, all this crazy stuff. And one of the players said he looked over and saw Lance Allworth, and he – said it calmed him completely down and everybody's like how'd you get so calm just by seeing Lance Allworth he's like well I knew if Lance Allworth was on this plane God wasn't going to take it down so he's (laughs) like that's how good he was that's how good he was (laughs) all right so after my next pick um at receiver it gets very dark all right so Don Maynard uh he was on the the Jets uh the main target for Namath um, I picked 65, 67, and 68. He uh, re- uh, ca- caught almost 4,000 yards and uh, 34 TDs in that time frame. Okay, okay. Uh, my next guy was Art Powell for the New York Jets and Oakland Raiders. I had him from 60, 63, and 64. Uh, he was a two-time receiving yards and touchdown reception leader. And two-time all-first team. And, yeah, it was, you know, it was pretty slim pickings at this point. Yeah, so slim. So <laughs> slim. I got Charlie Hennigan. And you're like, who? And I'm like, yeah, I was like, who as well? So 61, 63, <laughs> 64. Not, not to mitigate who he is as a, as a player. Right. Because his numbers are really good. I just, not a lot of, you know reference points for me as it relates to this particular player but the research says man this guy was one of the better you know receivers uh, of his time so 43 uh, more than 4300 yards and 30 touchdowns for those three years that i chose charlie hennigan all right and then you got first pick on our flex position yep flex what do we got jim nance and not our golf announcer, Jim Nance. Uh, definitely another another player. Um, yeah. So I picked 66, 67, and 69. Uh, was a running back. He ran for uh, almost 3,500 yards. Um, re- uh, receiving was 500 and uh, 25 total touchdowns for those years. Nice, nice. Good on you, Jim. <laughs> um yeah, and I was I remember when we were going back and forth making our picks, I was just praying you weren't going to take this guy. And uh it's the aforementioned Billy the Atomic Cannon uh for the Houston Oilers. He really was the first, I mean, aside from being the first big 
get for the AFL uh, in the draft because he was the number one pick in both leagues and was ended up signing with the with the AFL, although there was some uh, uh, lawsuits involved, the NFL trying to sue to They were always him. suing each other yeah. until the merger, pretty much. Right. There's always, like, this tumultuous kind of undercurrent between yeah. these two leagues, yeah. Yeah, he, uh, and it, so in um, 1960 to 1962, led the league in rushing and all-purpose yard. Uh, so I had him from 60 to 62. He led the league in rushing and all-purpose yards in 1961. And, I mean, if I just want to let anybody know, listening know, go back and watch some of the highlights of these guys that we're, we're drafting here on the, on YouTube. The, it was there. You could see some of these guys playing in today's NFL and, or just kind of like where, you know, some of the skills and, and moves and, you know, these guys were, it was just, they were ahead of their time, especially these AFL guys. Cause right. it wasn't three yards in a cloud of dust anymore. Like it was in the NFL in the fifties. So, yeah. So and Billy, I mean, I watched this one highlight where he he goes into this wheel route, right, and then and then takes like a post and just outruns the linebacker, just had him beat by two or three yards, and just put right over the top by Blanda, just lands, just real, just like one of those things you wouldn't like, expect to see back then. Right. So great pick. So that's it for the draft. Yep. Let's accumulate the points and see what we got. So uh, Jeremy, you came in at. Four two nine seven point seven four, and drum roll please. I come in at four zero two five dot one four. So your streak. So I'm two and zero. Oh, is that what you're telling me? Two and zero. Oh. Undefeated. God damn it. <laughs> two and zero. Oh. oh man. Hey, you know it is what it is. We're. I'm I'm coming back in the sixties and seventies. So. You're gonna you're just gonna be checking for all my little uh, all my uh little cheat codes i have in here all right so we added a couple of extra categories for this particular podcast because it was just kind of such a interesting topic and for me it just was so amazing to dive in and and get all these little tidbits of history so uh this one is the observations from the doc uh specifically the um full color football documentary that we were we're watching together. Um, so one of the things I noticed was that fans were literally on the sideline. So they would, maybe not where the players were on the sideline, but just right up on the end zone, toes to the end zone. In fact, there was this one play, I don't, I don't know if it was a, a game of consequence or whether it was just a regular season game, but it was coming down to this final play. And the route was the receiver was basically just running a quick in. And somebody from the crowd had come into the field, ducked under the linebacker, and when the ball was thrown, reached up and knocked it down. Game over. They just walked off. No one knew what happened. He ran. He just, like, went back into the crowd. Like, yeah, you, like yeah it was, it was crazy. That was so crazy. And as soon as the ball hit the ground, like, 20 people, like, right into the mix, just <laughs> mingling with everything. It was it was so crazy to see. Yeah. Um, a quick one I had uh, was in 1961, the Raiders were out of money about to they were gonna just fold up got some interest from both new orleans and seattle of all places like because we're i mean we're like bitter rivals with the raiders still even though we're not both in the afc west anymore uh and ralph wilson actually loaned uh, or put a four hundred thousand dollar stake into the raiders 
So, Not a state. Gave him a loan. Lo- okay. So yeah, yeah. Loaned him four hundred. Loaned the owner of the Raiders at the time four hundred thousand dollars because he just knew that if, if you can't. They they wouldn't have been able to go with seven teams. They needed eight teams. It was best for the league. Had to had to do it, and that's the, that's the other common thing theme of this league. It's not you know Lamar Hunt moves his team from from Dallas to Kansas City because it's better for the league. Ralph Wilson gets a four hundred thousand dollar loan to his opponent in in Oakland because it's better for the league. It's it's nice to see. Yeah, so they were definitely. Um... Uh, one for all, all for one right. in a lot of scenarios here. So another thing I noticed, it was just kind of like a weird thing to see is a, a wide receiver in a three-point stance. You almost never see that now. I mean, never, right? Like you rarely see a tight end in a three-point stance right. um, sometimes. But a receiver out there by themselves in a three-point stance looked really, really funny. Just all worth coming off that to uh, <laughs> yeah. to run in those Chris routes. I thought that was crazy. Yeah, I uh, one that I thought was interesting. Um, I have so many, man. It's crazy. Uh, I was shocked that Marty Schottenheimer was a linebacker in professional football. I always just thought of that guy as being kind of like a little weaselly. I don't. I don't know. I don't. I mean, I think he passed away, so I don't want to like discourage disparage the dead now. But Too late, I think. I, yeah, he. Uh, I just always like. I remember the Seahawks and Kansas City used to have like crazy rivalries in the '90s when Derek Thomas used to. Quietly, one of the most successful coaches in NFL yeah, history. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. But I had no, yeah, I just had no idea that he was uh, that he was a linebacker of all things. I thought maybe he was a kicker or something. How about his name on the back of the jersey? It went from like <laughs> arm sleeve to arm sleeve. Yeah, that was it great. covered the entire back. That was so funny, man. But you could tell him even back then he was he was asking questions of the starting linebackers. He was you know inquisitive and trying to figure out what was going on. What did you see out there? And you can see right. how that um, he was basically thirst a for coach. knowledge was translated yeah. to him being a coach. He was learning how to be a coach, and because so, he wasn't really playing much, so he was definitely learning how to be a coach. I have, I have a soft spot for him. He was a coach of the Browns for a while. Okay. Okay. <laughs> So another thing that was like, speaking of coaches, it was so shocking. It's just like coaches sitting there smoking cigarettes like oh, yeah. while they're in the huddle or just like hanging out of their mouth and they're yelling at the ref. And I was like, it's like John Madden was smoking. I'm like, what are you doing, man? <laughs> well, yeah, like I, it's so funny, man. You don't like same with baseball back then. Like, even in the, the 90s and early 2000s, like you would – Lou Pinella, who's the Mar- Seattle Mariners manager until 2001 or 2002, he would go. You'd see him like go back into the like into the tunnel to go to the locker room, and you'd just see kind of smoke coming out from back there every now and again because he'd be he'd need his like every three three or four innings he'd need to go back and, and smoke a cigarette. To I guess I'm at a point now where if I see somebody smoking in their car like next to me while I'm driving, it's shocking. So <laughs> yeah, totally. This, this totally. was particularly abrasive absolutely so one of the things i thought was hilarious is that um joe namath we've talked about him a couple of times here was such a different type of player he was a marketing gem for the afl he was big he was broadway joe he was liked by so many different types of fans on top of that he looked flashy he was good he gave you wins um, he was relatively good with the media, and um, he was becoming 
almost in the 60s this idea of counterculture his hair wasn't buzzed and he was wearing you know um fur coats and bell-bottom pants and eventually worked his way into uh nixon's uh enemy list i guess that's my that was my favorite i think that might be my favorite thing about joe namath to be honest with you <laughs> like so post watergate they're investigating they're pulling up the hit list for um not hit list but the enemy list for nixon and there it is joe namath absolute so joke so funny so crazy yeah you know i had another one i thought i heard in the in the documentary was the ultimate like rich white guy flex was H.L. Hunt was asked about Lamar Hunt losing so much money every year on the AFL, and I think that that he had lost a million dollars. It was it was on pay. You know, it was losing a million dollars a year trying to get this league started. And so a reporter, or somebody asked H.L. Hunt, "What what was you know what do you think about this?" And he's like, "Well." Uh, I guess he can only afford to run the league for about another hundred years, if if that's the case. <laughs> so like, he was just like, yeah, I don't, know, I don't care. A million dollars, what's that? So one of the things, that, so Bill Belichick was in this doc, all over this doc. I've yeah. never seen a man so happy Are just you to text, be talking about football. Me. Just the smile the on his thing. face the entire time. He was commenting on Pete Gogolak and how it changed the game, how Paul Brown changed the game. Um, there's an amazing deep dive um, with Bill Belichick on YouTube. Somebody asks him, like, why you carry a long snapper in the 53-man roster? Why do you specifically hold a roster spot for that versus yeah. a center or something else? I'm not going to get into it because he does it way better than I would, but it's amazing. You should go listen to it. <laughs> um, also, the funniest thing kind of anecdotally that I heard in this, like Bill, um, I believe his dad was coaching um, – army and he was living in annapolis and at the time uh spiro agnew was the governor of maryland so he was playing golf and bill was the caddy over at this annapolis uh golf course and his response to to knowing spiro agnew was uh he was a bad golfer and a bad tipper that was it yeah. i'm just like wow that was good that <laughs> bill was belichick good. throwing shade yeah that's that was good. I thought that was really funny too. Um, I thought what, another one that was funny to me was that while the AFL and NFL were going back and forth on trying to get the better draft picks, the NFL had to come up with something called Operation Handhold, oh, where yeah. they would take players once they had agreed to sign with them until they had actually signed on the dotted line. They would like take them to a hotel room and like get them you know whatever they wanted like room service this and that you know take them out on the town but they would always have somebody with them to make sure that no afl representatives could uh you know get in their ear and and not even agreed to sign if they were uh, eligible for the nfl draft and a major player they would have somebody from the nfl babysit them (laughs) i love it to make sure they didn't get any phone calls so funny man so funny yeah that is that's insane that's like next level like crazy in a lot of ways so there is a scene where one of the players is reading a wall street journal and my mind went oh it's the wall street journal looks exactly the same now as it did in 1963 like the front cover i thought that was interesting (laughs) little historical context no kidding and i think one of the final observations that i had was um the if you haven't seen it yet youtube autumn wind is a raider it's an iconic nfl films uh 
clip and it is amazing they have this poem that they're reading and this great music and you're watching like the raiders just like take heads off it's, yeah. it's pretty good they they kind of played that um autumn wind uh in the in the documentary it's pretty pretty sweet yeah yeah no, that was great uh my last observation was that while they were up until the point that they had agreed to a merger with the nfl CBS would not report AFL football scores on orders, uh, allegedly on orders from the NFL, and they only started reporting them after the announcement of the merger. So the AFL was behind the eight ball from the jump, man. Like they, I, the the fact that they were able to come out of this and and get a merger with the with the NFL. And the one other thing is that you you mentioned um, the Pete Gogolak, the kicker that was right. kind of the the tip of the iceberg for all of this you know all the, the for the two teams coming or the two leagues coming together uh it's the gulf of tonkin incident yeah for the yeah. <laughs> afl nfl war. right right and so there's a there's a point in there a clip in in the documentary where um al davis says we got we got a merger as soon as he heard the news that uh that pete gogolak had signed with the giants he said, "We're it's it's over." It was more like we were we're gonna win, right? Or yeah, I mean, he he knew that. Yeah, he thought they were gonna. He thought the NFL teams were gonna come and <laughs> fold into his league, I believe, and that he was gonna be the the new guy, you know. So one of the things that's important for a lot of these leagues in general is to have that watershed moment, that one game that just goes, "Oh my God, this is amazing!" So for the NFL, that was the 1958 greatest game of all time, which we discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. For the AFL, their watershed moment was the 1958—I'm uh, sorry, the 1962 AFL championship game with the Dallas Texans when they beat the Houston Oilers. It was—it uh, was a rock fight, uh, double OT. It was a 20 to 17 win by the Dallas Texans. Um, it was their first kind of championship in the league. It was a found, you know, obviously Lamar Hunt, the kind of uh, founder of this whole whole league, finally got his championship. Uh, but that was the one that um, put the AFL on a map from the from popu- from a popularity standpoint. Right, and you know, to, back to your point about Al Davis, you know, he was. Um, the last to know about the merger. There was stuff that they were doing behind the scenes and they didn't want to tell him. Um, he apparently was still, bitter is the wrong word, but kind of felt like he should have been involved in that conversation. And he, like I said earlier, his his response is, you know, the generals wage war, the politicians make peace. Yeah. And that's the way he kind of like puts, you know, puts it at peace for him as well. Like he did his job. These guys went and did the rest. Right. Um, I, I guess I did have one more observation uh, that the that I thought was interesting. The Colts, Steelers and Browns uh, were the team, three teams that switched to the, I guess, to play with the other AFL teams after the merger um, to be in their division, their side of the league. And they had to be paid $3 million each because nobody wanted to go over there. Yeah, and, so... But they, as soon as they, they offered asked, that money... They um, had asked, right? Right. And then everyone's like, no, nah, we don't want to go. Right. And then apparently they offered the money and the Colts owner was like, yep, I'm in. Yeah, I'm in. Let's I'm go. over. <laughs> and then they finally, just based on... Um, yeah, and just based on um, 
you know, uh, regional competition. They brought over the Steelers and the Browns as well. Yeah. So, so those three teams got, got a little uh, three. And the stage is set for the yeah. 1970s at that point. Absolutely. One final anecdote, Paul Brown. He leaves, he leaves the Cleveland Browns um, at this point. He's kind of fighting with his, with his owner. Um, and he buys the Cincinnati Bengals. He, he's asked, like, did you, when the merger was announced, he's asked, did you, did you know the merger was coming? And his response, I didn't buy a football team to be in the AFL. <laughs> so he knew it was coming down the pike. Apparently before um, Al did. And yeah, here you go, going into the merger. All right, so now we have our uh, winners and losers of the AFL. That's it. So my first uh, winner is Lamar Hunt. Um, he's like, NFL, you don't want me? Fine, I'll make my own league. He made several sacrifices uh, to make the AFL success, but you know was rewarded um, with a Super Bowl victory and um, getting his team eventually merged in, or his league eventually merged into the NFL. Yeah, no, I, that's a good one for sure. I had uh, American city or fan, American football fans in cities that didn't have teams because yeah. of the television coverage and the two leagues. I mean, it made it so that you're getting, you know, you can watch any number of games from Friday through Monday, I guess. I don't know what year they started Monday Night Football, but because um, they were they would put the AFL games on Fridays to try to you know not not have to compete with uh, the NFL yeah, yeah on that's Sundays. A, that's a really good point because you think about regional maps now. You look at a, a, a state like Idaho. Idaho's like huge Denver Broncos fans, and I like without without that like who do they who do they root for? Right. So you're able to expand your audience substantially and get people's buy-in. So yeah, great. Great, great winner. Yeah, um, I have the cities of Minnesota and Dallas. Um, they got the Vikings and the Cowboys. Um, because the NFL was simply trying to undermine the AFL. Yeah. No, that's a good one for sure. Um, yeah. So um, my next uh, winner is Oilman. Um, it just seems like they're the 1960 equivalent of that tech company boom. Um, they had a bunch of diff- bunch of money that apparently they didn't know what to do with. Um, so a lot of the AFL uh, origins and the NFL uh, expansions um, tie to, to to being an oilman. Yeah, Mike. So my next winner of the decade was the players. We talked a little bit about this earlier. You know, Jim Brown saying, "Hey, now they can't hold me hostage. I can go to you know I don't have to choose between going to Canada and playing in in America." I have a whole nother league I have to hold the, you know, the NFL's feet to the fire with. Yeah. And, and the washed up players too, the quote unquote washed up players, right? Yeah. It offered the, the George Blandas of the world an opportunity to get back into the sport that they loved. I mean, I think he played for 10 years before he retired in right. 1958 from the, uh, was the, he missed the 1959 season, um, jumped back onto this bandwagon and played till like 1975. So right. 25 years crazy. of a career because of this, of this league. Yeah. Not to mention the money that then they had bidding wars for, for guys coming out of college. They had bidding war. I mean, obviously they weren't really like poaching each other's free agents until, till the end, but yeah, the yeah. rank and file players, I don't know how much this all helped, but definitely the, the elite talent in the league, definitely benefit or in, in in pro football definitely benefited from the afl yeah 
my next one is the city of Oakland. Um, kind of fell backwards into a team, you know, when, when Minnesota left. So good on them. Yeah, my next one is African-American players and players from small schools. Oh, yeah. They were getting, you know, way more of a chance that they never would have had with just the NFL. And the AFL needed somewhere to, to get talent from. So there you go. You know, they got you got a whole whole other league of uh, teams that need to be filled. You're going to get, get, get more options, opportunities. And, yeah, I thought that was uh, – they were definitely, uh, you know, like had a had a much higher chance of uh, making a team at that point. Yeah, uh, big shout out to the sports fans of Long Island, New York. I mean, 1969 must have been their greatest year ever. <laughs> they get a Super Bowl victory uh, from the uh, the guaranteed Jets, and the Miracle Mets won the World Series that year. So um, great job um, for those people in Long Island. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right, any more winners? That's all my winners. All right, now let's talk about losers. Uh, my first loser is the Bidwells. Um, not really allowed <laughs> to move their team. Um, not really wanting to field any uh, offers uh, from any other buyers. Um, they were kind of forced to move to Minneapolis for a season. Uh, uh, yeah, to Minneapolis for a season. They did play there as the Chicago Cardinals. Um, they were ultimately able to, to relocate to St. Louis. But in their whole tenure in St. Louis, uh, made the playoff three times and never hosted a playoff game, never won a playoff game. So it, it was it was hard going for them. Yeah. You know, 1960 on. you know, what's funny to me is that they kind of were the catalyst for the AFL starting the Bidwell family. And they still own the, the Cardinals to this day in Arizona now. They so do. That's yeah. And that's uh, that's pretty nuts. So that's very cool. Um my main loser from this from the decade i mean it's not really my main one but so the one i liked the most of for a loser for the uh for the afl was the players like mike ditka and brody from john brody john brody the 49ers quarterback that signed lucrative deals with afl teams then they were returned to their NFL NFL. team as soon as the merger happened. So I'm sure there were hurt feelings or, you know, people were pissed off that you were going to leave and go bail out to this other team or the coaches. Because it was a whole different world back then, right, compared to what it is now. Right. So I thought thought that was just an interesting little tidbit that they – they, all these guys got got returned to their team. All the guys that signed off of the Rams to go to different AFL teams all went back. So another loser is, uh, for me, is the cities of Seattle and Miami. Uh, both were um, slated um, for um, AFL teams initially. Um, Seattle eventually got a team, as we know, um, but it wasn't until 1976. Um, the Miami Dolphins came in in 1966. But initially, the ownership groups uh, were they were basically denied because they didn't want to compete with local teams. So Miami and Seattle. And kind of my final loser, um, and this is kind of a kinda, and that's uh, Baron Hilton. Um, he was asked to be the CEO of uh, Hilton Hotel Corporation, and but in order to do that, he needed to cease any football-related responsibilities. So he sold the Chargers um, prior to the merger. He did sell it for $10 million, uh, which is the equivalent of $85 million today. Um, 
being that his initial investment was 25k it's not a bad return on your investment right but but imagine just imagine (laughs) the franchise is worth uh, three billion dollars now so i was gonna say two man and i was thinking maybe that was a little too high but well 2.92 billion okay so that's still man that's wild so yeah Kind of a loser. Yeah. But not really. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Could you imagine the Hiltons with uh, with with an NFL team, too, in their in their family portfolio? Forget about it. Forget about it. All right. So that's the end of the categories. So now we have to determine who won the decade. So here's what we have. Um, based on points alone, the winner of the decade is the uh, L.A. slash San Diego Chargers. They went 86, 48 and 6 for the decade. They made the playoffs five times, conference championship five times, and won one AFL championship in 1963. Now, they're notable because Sid Gilman, head coach of the Chargers, revolutionized the downfield passing by incorporating a more vertical, motion-oriented offense. Now, basically, he designed plays to use the entire field. We're like, we got it 100 yards. 53 yards, 100 yards long, 53 and change wide. We're going to use it all. And this forced other the defenses to play in all of these different spaces. Right. So he kind of revolutionized um, a passing attack and offense. A lot of the, the principles that, that he came up with we see nowadays. Make him defend the whole field. You've heard that before. Yep. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Oh, also, Chargers still have the greatest – Uniforms and professional sports. Ooh. Powder blues. That is hot take alert from MJ over here. We in all of sports. All of sports. Uh, like, what about like the Yankees pinstripes? No. What? Powder blue is better than that. Oh not God. not more iconic, but it looks okay. better. Yeah, it might look. Yeah. Are you really you're throwing shade on the uh, Seahawks neon uh, green jerseys? What do they call it? Action, action green <laughs> oh man so yeah uh, alright so yeah we had LA slash San Diego Chargers as our team of the decade arguably I, th- this one I felt like we could argue more about than a lot because so our runner up was the Houston Oilers who their dynasty di- by decade score was 37 they went 70 66 and 4 for their record uh, for that decade made the playoffs five times conference champion four times afl championship two times back to back in 60 and 61 um yeah so they won the first two that's yeah. pretty important right it puts it they put the league on the map um and they they lost in the in the third one so they played they went to the first three championship games won the first two lost the third right um yeah, I mean, we're only talking about four points here, so it's not a whole lot. Um, but one of the things that this calculation that we've come up with really touches on is consistency throughout the throughout the decade. Not just a, a team that comes out and um, wins a championship, it just sucks the rest of the time. There's a couple of those in here farther down the list. But right. um, yeah, so that's why you know we picked... Th- at this point, it was just numbers. How many points, how many destiny points does one team have versus the other? So, um, but yeah, always an argument with this particular one here. Right, yeah. And so with the Oilers also, you know, they had Bud Adams, um, you know, just the owner Bud Adams thought that 
going that defense was going to take some time to acclimate. So he thought going all in on offense with players like Billy Cannon and George Blanda were was so important, and that's why they won. The, in retrospect, two, brilliant, brilliant know. moves, right? And you know, and I feel like getting Billy Cannon. I mean, I think that's such a huge under maybe underappreciated part of the whole AFL succeeding was getting that the superstar player because back then I mean college football was huge and and, you know it's huge today but think about it like you know everybody watched college football it was more it was probably just as if not more popular than professional football at this time so getting a guy like Billy Cannon to go to your to sign with the AFL instead of going to the NFL which was the established force at the time is just I think it's really undervalued I don't even know if you can put in words how valuable that must have been at the time yeah nationally known player Heisman Trophy winner picks a startup league over an established NFL Um, he was a very important player for for the AFL and for the Houston Oilers and to your point I don't I don't think you can really kind of um, gauge his full impact you know in, in league history yeah all right, so uh, here's where we start with the honorable mentions. Now, the scores are going to be a little bit lower, but we put them in here because I think they really needed to be called out. So our first honorable mention is the uh, Dallas Texans slash Kansas City Chiefs. They had a, a destiny score of 19. They went 87-48-5 uh, for the decade. Um, they made the playoff three times, conference champions twice, um, and they lost um, – oh, AFL champion – three times um and they uh won in 1962 um they lost to the green bay packers in uh, the first super bowl in 66 and then they won uh super bowl four the final super bowl of and i think this is why it's important um both for the league and for lamar hunt in particular it was his team that won the super bowl super bowl four the final super bowl before the merger put a cap on the end of that before they take over as one unified NFL for the 1970 season. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's definitely super important. Okay, and then the next honorable mention team would be the Buff- Buffalo Bills. Uh, they had a record of 65, 69, and 6 for that decade and a dynasty by decade score of 29 which is crazy that they had a higher score than than Buffalo or than uh, Kansas City right. or Dallas um, but they made the playoffs four times uh, they were conference champions conference champions four times and AFL champions twice back to back in 64 and 65 they seem to kind of fall right in the middle um, quite like chronologically and you know philosophy from a philosophy standpoint they're really the first team to incorporate this is where defense took over that was their the thing that got them into the championship games and and won it for them was their defense it was a very uh everything else was offense up to that point sid gilman and uh, Ken Dawson and throwing the ball and then these guys come in went back to back with a with a good but not great Jack Kemp. Right. Uh, with a great Cookie Gilchrist. Lou Saban is the coach. Lou Saban's the coach. And um, just a wonderful defense. And it back-to-back championships, you can't you can't ignore that. Yeah. You know, nobody circles the wagons like the Buffalo Bills. No one. No one. 
All right, next honorable mention, Oakland Raiders. Uh, we have a destiny score of 25. They went um, 78, 57, and 5 for the decade. Made playoffs three times, conference championship one time, AFL championship one time, lost to the Green Bay Packers in Super Bowl two. So they took a minute to kind of get going. They didn't really achieve their uh, full ability until later in later in the decade. Um, so they were a middle of the league team, but they had like these character players. They kind of still do in a lot of ways, less so than they did in those seventies and stuff like that. So yeah. they always had these players with the beards and the Fu Manchus and like, just, they look like they were pirates or, you know, <laughs> yeah, something. they fit the role for sure. And, and they, they, when, uh, La Monica got there, Dan La Monica got there. It's kind of when their offense took off. So, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I guess, you know, we couldn't pass up this last team as an honorable mention, Mike. Uh, you have to. Yeah, the the New York Football Jets. Like how can you how can you uh not not choose them? They you know their di- their dynasty by decade score was only 12. They their record for that decade was 69, 65 and 6. Uh made the playoffs twice, one-time conference championship. Uh, AFL champion one, one time, including winning Super Bowl three versus the Baltimore Colts in 1968, which was probably the most important game in AFL history, I would say. Yeah. In, in merging with the NFL, it was the most important thing. Big shout out to Jizz's Liquid Swords. That was the night everything changed. <laughs> I love it. Did not expect that to come out. Um, yeah, so, yeah, he, uh, he, he just, yeah, because at that time. Uh, it was the first time that the AFL was ever crowned world champion. Yes, and and at the time, though, they were, the, the NFL was thinking they needed to rethink the way that the Super Bowl was going to work because they were like, you know, we've just been stomping these guys Yeah, the out. Packers blew their doors off in the first two Super Bowls. Right. Like, what are we doing with these guys? Can yeah. they even compete with us? We this have to... is, yeah, this is a we, – we need to re, re-strategize everything. So they, they, yeah. were, they were considering putting – reseeding everything and making, you know, the AFL teams lower seeds because they weren't as good maybe as the NFL teams. Yeah, so. they're going to keep the Super Bowl concept, right? Right, but they're just—they weren't sure what they were going to do. But this yeah. was, this is this is when solidified know, the AFL solidified made their AFL. planted their flag, and from that point it was like, all right, we need to talk about these mergers. So prior to the '66 season, they had really started talking about mergers um, at that point, and they had joint um, drafts for '66, '7, '8, and '9. That is, all of the teams based on record would be integrated into a order of draft picks uh, for the both both the conferences so they're not directly competing with each right. other anymore so this was the time 1968 was the season the super bowl was played in 69 this was the season that really said all right the afl should be here yeah. and this is the right path we're on we're going to merge this and you know what they did um, in the 70s uh the the AFL they dominated the seventies after this so yeah. um, this was they lost they won the last two Super Bowls in in the sixties and they dominated the seventies so um, they definitely deserved to be there and it was the Jets that proved that I couldn't yeah I couldn't agree more I couldn't agree more well hey there you have it the AFL 
that was that was like the longest audible I feel like has ever taken place, but it was great. I had so much fun doing this, and yeah, this is this was like I said, a, a, amazing. It was just a huge blind spot in my um, my football <laughs> learning life, and I, it was just I was happy to to dive into this head first and 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 find this info. So yeah, a lot of fun. Me too. Me too. All right. Well, next week we will be back with 1960s NFL. And thank you guys for listening. You can uh, listen, like, rate, review, share this podcast. We would be so appreciative. Uh, we will talk to you next week. All right. <laughs>